Does everyone here know who Tim Tebow is? Show of hands. Okay, yeah. You know, I know it'd be possible not to know who Tim Tebow is, but for those of you who don't, he's been in the news a lot lately uh, for a number of reasons, actually, too. He's the second-year quarterback for the Denver Broncos. And Tim Tebow was well-known in his college days because he was so successful. I think he was the Heisman Trophy winner, led Florida to a national championship. He was just huge in college football, well-known, respected, et cetera, you name it. Good to go. You know, he gets to the NFL, and there's always this knock against him saying he's not an NFL quarterback. He's this big guy. He can run well, but he just can't pass. And so he has all these naysayers. You know, life is hard. He's good in some ways, but not in others. He'll never make it here. So Denver was doing so badly the front end of this year, losing so regularly, that they decided to give Tebow a chance. And so, lo and behold, the underdog comes out of his playpen, and they give him a chance. And, you know, since he started quarterbacking, Denver's 7-1. and one. And these victories are these last-second victories. It's... Uh, it's amazing, and the sports, it's all NFL uh, sports yesterday was talking about was Tim Tebow, and they're playing today at 315, by the way, against the New England Patriots, uh, Tom Brady, one of the best quarterbacks of all time, and they're comparing Tim Tebow this weekend to Tom Brady. Who do you think has a better chance of winning if the game's even at the end of the game, you know? So Tebow's well-known. He's come on strong. He's had this great success, and yet for all that, the sports world is talking about him for his on-the-field success for sure, but there's this whole other side of Tim Tebow. Uh, he's a guy that people have loved to hate in some ways, and one of the reasons is because he's an outspoken Christian. And the way that looks is usually if he's interviewed after the game, I saw him last week, overtime victory against Chicago, you know, the game's over, he comes up to the commentator, and, you know, the, the guy's got the questions about the game. And so Tebow's first words, before he says anything else, you can count on, they're predictable. He says, first, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the game. And that's his standard. And he gets knocked for it a lot. So there's conversation about him, not just because of his exploits on the field, but it's about this guy's always talking about Jesus. We want to talk about football, he's always talking about Jesus First, and so other people in the NFL, other Christian players are sort of queried by media folks, and they say, what do you think about this? You know, what, do you, what does this look like to you? Do you think this is good or not? One of the guys that responded to this query was Aaron Rodgers, pretty good quarterback himself with the Green Bay Packers, and apparently a Christian. I, I didn't know that, but Aaron Rodgers said this. He quoted Francis of Assisi when asked about Tebow's verbal witness, preach the gospel at all times use words when necessary. And, you know, I'm assuming that for Rogers, it's sort of, Tim, you know, maybe quiet it down a little bit, you know, let people see your witness as well as hear it, I'm assuming, assuming that's what he was speaking. We sometimes say actions speak louder than words, and usually if someone's made claims, especially if they're bold or they're unusual, it's not unusual for us to want to see it backed up. What does that look like? really for you. You know, if you think about communicating with people, words are pretty much unavoidable most of the time. Speech is how we communicate with people. And if you're thinking about the gospel, 
You know, Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, the, the message about Jesus, that's the power of God to save us. And, you know, in Paul's day especially, far less writing in his day, that meant you had to speak it. People had to hear it. The gospel message had to be verbal. Or if you think when John the Apostle begins the gospel of John, he says Jesus is the word. Jesus is the spoken reality of God. So speech and speaking and verbal witness for sure is necessary to communicate the gospel and the reality of Jesus to others for sure. But at the same time, don't we appreciate it if someone along with their verbal witness backs it up by the way they live so that you know they're not just saying something, you know they really believe it because of their example, what we might call their silent witness. The silent witness usually is what we do. It's not what we say. It's how we live. It's not the verbal. It's the speech less. And so how loud can an unspoken witness be? How clearly can people hear our unspoken, our silent witness? That's what we're talking about this morning. We're going to look at a guy in the Christmas stories who, who says not one single word, which is remarkable. And by the way, this, this, his story stands out because this is clearly intentional on God's part. Not a single word is uttered by this Christmas character. Now, if you look in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, those are the Christmas stories. That's the Christmas narrative. And I'll be jumping back and forth between those two sections this morning. But if you look at the Christmas cast, you've got this lengthy group of characters, individuals and groups, and they all have their speaking parts. You know, if you were doing this as a play, you'd say these folks are the speaking parts. Maybe the shepherd individually doesn't speak, but the shepherd group says something. These are the speaking roles. So just going through this list a little bit, you've got God's angel messenger, Gabriel, you know, and Luke. Gabriel comes down from heaven and he talks to Zachariah and he talks to Mary. And he's telling them about the babies they're going to have. You know, John the Baptist in one case, Jesus in the other. Gabriel's talking. You go to Zachariah in Luke's gospel, old Zachariah the priest. You know, when he's silent, it's because God has judged him. Gabriel came and told him the truth. Zachariah says, I don't believe it. Not quite in that word. I don't believe it. And Gabriel says, you didn't believe me and you're going to be silent. It's a judgment because you didn't believe God. But then later, when John the Baptist is born, nine months later and he's being circumcised, all of a sudden Zechariah gets his voice back and, you know, he's got this page-long prophetic utterance and declaration of God's goodness. Another speaking part. Uh, Mary is silent in Matthew's gospel. But Mary has tons to say in Luke's gospel. So she interacts with the angel, with Gabriel. And then her verbal part ends with this prayer we call the Magnificat. She says, uh, my soul rejoices in the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Great speaking part. In Matthew's gospel, the angels declare the glory of God. The magi come in and they ask for directions. The shepherds glorify God. They tell others what they've seen and what they've heard. And in all the speaking roles in these Christmas characters, in all the prophetic utterances, all the declarations of praise, glory to God in the highest, in all of it, there's just one person 
And he's not insignificant. There's one person who doesn't say a single word. And so his witness to us is entirely silent on one hand, and yet it screams on the other because the example and the witness is so sterling. And if you've read the title of your study sheet, you know that the guy I'm talking about is Joseph, the husband of Mary and the stepfather to the Lord Jesus Christ. Entirely a silent witness, not a word. So what do we know about Joe? Uh, you know, my oldest brother's name is Joseph, and every time he introduces himself, he says, I'm Joseph Halpin. And everyone says, hi, Joe. So if I call Joseph Joe, I, th- I think that's okay here this morning. Joe. So what do we know about Joe or Joseph? If you look in Matthew 1.16, this is the lengthy genealogy Matthew starts with. Matthew's a Jewish writer, and he's writing to a Jewish audience, and he wants, to know, he wants them to know where Jesus came from, and that's important related to Joseph. So Matthew 1.16 shows us that not only is Joseph's father Jacob, but he's in the direct descendant line of King David. So Joseph is a direct descendant of King David. So that if Israel was a monarchy in Joseph's day, he would be considered royalty and he'd have a claim on the throne of Israel. Direct descendant of David. He also, you see, goes back in the genealogy to Abraham. Because Matthew wants folks to know that Jesus' father Joseph, his stepfather Joseph, is part of the line of promise God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, that through Abraham and through his seed, Paul says in Galatians, a God would bless the world. So we know that Joe is in this line of promise, not only a descendant of David, but a descendant, direct descendant of Abraham with the promises of God to Abraham as well. Now, Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, but it was important that Joseph was in this line because he's Jesus' legal father. And so for Jesus to have a claim on the throne of Israel, it comes through Joseph. And so Joseph, as Jesus' stepfather, is his legal father. That's important. Now, Joe has this noble pedigree, but you read elsewhere in the Gospels, he's, he's a carpenter. You know, he, no blue blood distinction in Joseph's day. You know, he's not socially important. He has no wealth. He supports himself and his family with his hands. He's a carpenter. He lives in Nazareth, we know too. And again, Nazareth, uh, you know, if I compared it to something locally, I would offend somebody here for sure. But Nazareth was the wrong side of the tracks if you were a Jew. You know, Jerusalem, that was the key place. Judah down in the south, that was hip. You know, Nazareth was up in the area. It was unsophisticated. It was the rustic, backwoods place. And it was, frankly, it was too close to the Gentiles, to the unclean Gentiles. So Joseph, no, nothing to distinguish him in his own day, for sure. Now, you do get down to Matthew 1, 18 through 20, and the text tells us two really important things about Joseph. The text says Joseph was righteous. He was in right standing with God, and it tells us by what he decides to do that he was kind or gracious or merciful. So he's righteous, God says, and he's merciful. He lived before God with a clear conscience. Luke says the same thing about Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
They were righteous before God. By this, we don't mean that they they brought to God their own righteousness, but they were living in faith before God, obeying God as far as they knew under the law, just like Paul would say of himself in the epistles also. And then he's kind. So listen to what J. Ligon Duncan says about Joseph. This is from the book, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. He says this about these two key qualities. He loves the law of God and knows that the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled. Remember, Joseph has heard that his fiancée Mary is pregnant, and he's not the father, and he knows this. And so how is he going to respond? You know, in Joseph's day, uh, you didn't stone people, but under the Mosaic law, someone caught in adultery was to be stoned to death. And certainly in Joseph's day, he could divorce her. Remember, for them, an engagement was marriage. You couldn't just break off an engagement. You were married, even though it hadn't been consummated yet. You had to get a divorce if you broke the marriage before the wedding. So he had options on putting her away. So he says he loves the law of God, knows the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled. This is the righteous side of Joseph. Marriage is holy, and so Joseph will not trifle with it. Although he loves Mary because of his love for God and his law, Joseph determines not to unite in an estate of adultery with this woman. Joseph, however, reveals in the midst of this display of righteousness that he is a kind man. In spite of Joseph's wounded affections for Mary, and you could imagine your affections would definitely be wounded, he does not take the recourses of the law that were available to him. Mary could have been publicly disgraced and expelled from the community, But instead of publicly disgracing Mary, Joseph kindly determines to divorce her quietly. There are many who are righteous but who are not kind. There are many who are kind but who are not righteous. Joseph, however, loved God and his law, and that love of God touched his heart, causing him to be a kind man, righteous and kind, concerned for God's law, concern for God's people. We quoted Micah 6.8 last week, and Joseph is certainly the epitome of that verse, doing justice, doing what's right, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. You see that in spades in Joseph's life. So when God the Father chooses the human stepfather on earth for his son Jesus, he chooses a man that shares God the Father's key characteristics righteousness or justice and mercy and if you look through the old testament you'll see this is what god is god's holy he always does right nothing less than that but he's also merciful or he has faithful love or loving kindness depending on your translation and that's what you see when the scripture describes joseph that's what it describes he's righteous he does justice and he loves mercy he has god's own heart and that's the person god the father entrusts with God the Son when he's this little baby coming into the world. Now, the rest of Joseph's story, it's tied up in four different dreams he has in Matthew 1 and 2. Four different dreams he's got. That's what we learn about Joseph. So the first dream in Matthew 1, verses 20 through 21, Joseph's found out about Mary. You know, he's heart sick. This is his plan. I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'll put her away. You know, I don't want her to be hurt but I can't marry her. And so an angel shows up in a dream and says, Joe, listen, don't worry. Go ahead and marry Mary, little Miriam, 
You can marry her because she's pregnant, not by another man as you think, but it's actually the Holy Spirit. And she's going to have this son. You're going to be the father and you're to call his name Jesus. So that's the dream. That's God speaking. So how does Joe respond? So verses 24 and 25, there are four verbs to describe what Joseph does. The angel speaks in the dream. Four verbs to describe what he does. He got up. He did what the angel said. He took Mary for his wife and he called the baby Jesus. So the angel says, this is the deal, Joe. This is what you're supposed to do. And the response Joseph have, it's all action. It's all obedience, and it's all immediate. And you see, this is the pattern for every dream. This is no coincidence. They're all verbs every time, and it's immediate. The second dream, chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus has been born. And they're in the region of Bethlehem, and they're living, living there. They didn't go back up to Nazareth. So now Herod's got plans to wipe this little baby out before he can grow up. So now the angel shows up to Joseph in a dream, and he says, hey, get up, take the child, take Mary, and flee down for safety into Egypt. Pack up your family, get your belongings, and get out. And so how does Joseph respond? Well, there's four verbs. He got up again, he took the baby and mother, he left for Egypt, and he stayed there until Herod died. So God commands Joseph through a dream by an angel, and Joseph's response is the same. It's immediate and complete obedience. All verbs to describe his response. Third dream, verses 19 and 20 there in chapter 2. Now, Joseph and his family are down in Egypt. Things are going along swimmingly, I take it. Life is good. But Herod has died. And so now the angel shows up to Joseph in a dream and says, Hey, Joe, get up, take Jesus and Mary now back into Israel. Joe's response in verse 21, three verbs, got up, took Jesus and Mary, entered the land of Israel. Same thing, exactly the same thing. Last dream, fourth dream, verse 22. This is very brief. But apparently maybe Joe had gone back to the area that they'd been, somewhere around Bethlehem. And there's a problem with that because Archelaus, the son of Herod, is still there and apparently would still pose a threat. So in the last dream, the angel says, Joe, don't stay in the south. Herod's son is king. There's still danger. Uh, Get someplace else. And so again, three verbs. He left for Galilee, entered the area. He settled in Nazareth. Now, Joseph on one level, he's boringly predictable in a good way. You know, God speaks, Joseph hears, and he obeys, and you can count on it every time. It's a simple formula for sure. To hear and obey God is the kind of response of faith God is after in all of us, and that's what you see in Joseph. His silent witness is the obedience of faith. It's obedience right now. He got up in each, each occurrence, and he did what he was commanded to do. So, Joe's silent witness is the obedience of faith. It's interesting, too, you know, he's tied to Abraham in the genealogy. And Lucy, if you think back on Abraham's life, do you remember God says to him, Abe, pack your family and your things up, right, and leave the place you've known and go to another country that you've never seen before? 
And isn't that exactly what God tells Joseph to do? Joe, pack up your family and your things and get away and go to another country you've never lived in before. It's exactly the same thing. Abraham's the father of faith, and his faith was demonstrated by his obedience to God. He got up and he left. And God says, go here, go there. Abraham does it. You see exactly that same pattern in the life of Joseph. God says, Abe, or Joseph, this is what I want you to do. Joe gets up and he does it. He's a true spiritual descendant of Abraham. He's not just a physical descendant of Abraham. He's a faithful descendant of Abraham as well. He shares the same faith. If you have children in this church's Sunday school class, you may know something they do every week, which I love. I've never seen it, but I'm told about it, Garrett. I've I've told you've been part of this. You can tell me if I'm wrong. So in their Sunday school class, they have a part where they're still all together. They've worshipped, and before they get apart into their separate groups, someone goes to the front of the group. Is this right, Garrett, so far? Okay. And the person in front says, present arms. And like they have a sword. They present arms. And then the one up front leads them and they say, kids, can you say this with me? Because you know it. Hail King Jesus, I hear and obey. Hail King Jesus, I hear and obey. See, that's it. That's Joe. This is not profound as far as intellectually wrapping our minds around it. The kids can understand it. Lord, I hear what you say, and I obey. That's it. Hail King Jesus, I'm submitted to your will. When you say it, I'm going to do it. You can count on it. Count on me. Hail King Jesus, I hear and obey. You know, Joseph's witness in the Christmas stories, it's silent on one hand, but I've got to tell you, it is so stinking convicting on the other. You know, this example of the guy, you can just count on him. He's sterling. God tells him to do something. That's what he's going to do. You know, and I look at my own life and I say, wow, uh, I've got room for improvement. You know, attitude and action. It's all about simple faith in God. Think about this too. Joe sort of had a plan for life. He's engaged to little Miriam to marry. You know, I'm sure he's building their house. He's saving up their money. He's got his plans for life, don't we all? And yet in the midst of that, God comes and just upends his apple cart. All of Joe's plans, they're out the window because God wanted to use him. Can you imagine the emotional adjustment? First, Mary's pregnant and I'm not the father. You know, the emotional disruption in your life you go through. And then God says, and by the way, this is what's going on. You're going to be stepfather, the human father to Israel's Messiah. This is heady stuff. But frankly, wouldn't most of us say, you know, I've got a nice plan, Lord. And I'd rather be about, I'd rather you being part of my plan than me being a part of your plan. You know, you don't hear, there's no quibbling, there's no complaining. There's no hesitation. To every one of these things, Joseph just responds, just like the kids, hail King Jesus, you know, I hear and obey. That's the deal. This is profound. When you go back to Luke and the angel talks to Zechariah, because Zechariah is an old guy and his wife's an old woman, and the angel says, you're going to have a baby, he doesn't believe it. And when he's silent, it's God's judgment on unbelief. You know, Joseph's silence, it has nothing to do with unbelief. 
It's all about a witness, a silent witness that screams loudly because it's real. It's about doing the do. It's not, I'm making a claim, but I don't live it. It's about doing what I say I believe. And because of that, it screams loudly. You know, it'd be better to be silent and obedient than to speak words of unbelief. Silent obedience is better any day than spoken unbelief. Patton Dodd wrote this in the December 10th Wall Street Journal. This is not about Joseph. This is about Tim Tebow. You know, silent witnesses are hard because they're convicting. So about Tim Tebow, Dodd wrote this. Mr. Tebow may indeed turn out to be a hypocrite like other high-profile Christians in recent memory. Some of us even want that to happen because moral failure is something we understand. We know how to deal with disappointed expectations to turn our songs of praise into condemnation. You know, kind of we knew. Couldn't, couldn't, he couldn't be that good. What we are far less sure how to do is to take seriously a public figure's seemingly admirable character and professions of higher purpose. We don't know how to trust goodness. And that, that of course, has a lot to say about Tim Tebow's detractors. They don't want him to be as good as he appears to be. And Joseph's silent witness, it's convicting, and it's a real hard act to follow. You know, if you compare the genuine article to trinkets, you put the trinkets to shame. So if you hold yourself up to a person like Joseph, it's easy not to measure up. The genuine article versus trinkets. So Joseph's silent witness, the obedience of faith. And his life and his example are convicting call to any of us, I hope, to live what we say we believe. That's a challenge. To not just say it, but to do it to do what God commands. This is a challenge. To accept overturned plans and lives in order to be part of God's greater purposes. This is a challenge. Those are all three verbs, aren't they? To live, to do, and to accept. Same thing is required of us. If you were here last May, you know that this is for Lion and Lamb Church, the year of men with chests. And I'll explain briefly because I know many of you weren't here in May. C.S. Lewis coined a phrase when he talked about men with chests. And by that, all he meant was men who had a Christ-informed moral center of gravity that informed their thoughts and their visceral responses to life. So the chest, that part of the middle of us that overruled just mere intellectualism or, or just a visceral emotional response to life, Christ-informed moral center. In a year of men with chests, how do you and I stack up against Joe? If people compare your life or mine, men, I'm speaking to the men here, to Joseph's, how do we stack up against Mr. Joseph's silent witness? It's a formidable example. It's a challenging example. Do we hear God's commands and then simply and immediately obey. It's a big deal. It's the reality to, to our profession of faith. And young men, of course, too. And the decisions you guys are making now, they form you into the adult man you become. 
For the young men, are you making the kinds of choices that help you grow up to be a Joseph, a guy who has a silent witness, if nothing else, a silent witness that puts the world on notice that you belong to Christ and you're going to obey God's commands? As young men, is that where we're at too? And men, would your wife say, my husband is a Joseph kind of a husband, he's faithful, he's obedient, he's a provider, he's a protector, I can count on him? Those are, those are high calls and challenges. You know, and for us as fathers, do our children, can they look at up look up at us and see Joseph's kind of witness as well, that we don't just tell our kids something. We're doing it ourselves. We're calling them up to Joseph's kind of lifestyle because it's what we say and, more importantly, it's what we do. So, guys, in, in the year of men with chess, Joseph is a formidable model and example and just a great example for us to look at and say, how do I measure up? How am I doing compared to Joseph not because he's the ultimate example but he's a pretty good one to use for sure for all of us Joseph's silent witness is a call to a life where actions match our creed where faith produces work and where hearing God's word and doing God's word are one and the same thing <clears throat> you know uh, Tim Tebow is known and and scorned by some for his verbal witness to Christ. But you know, he's also got a silent witness to Christ that he's become famous for. How many here are aware of this? Do you know what I'm... Yeah. So Tebowin. Tebowin is, is Tim Tebow's silent witness. And so after every game, in the midst of tens of thousands of people... After each game, Tim Tebow drops to the ground on one knee, head down, and bows in humble prayer. And he's consistent. Just like Joseph, every time God says something, he does it. Well, after every game, that's what Tebow does. Yeah, just like that. After every, you can count on it. This position of humble prayer, he's not saying a word to anyone. But you've got this silent witness, I belong to Christ, I'm Christ's man, and what I do on the football field or in the rest of life, that's what I'm about. Tim Tebow's silent witness. And you know, besides this, through the money he earns as a football player, you know, they support, they run an orphanage in the Philippines. He's known for the things he does in service to other people. Selfless acts, some of which we know, some of which the media talks about, some that they don't talk about. But Tim Tebow has a silent witness too. And it's just a position of prayer. You know, there were, I think it was three or four guys in a bar in the East. This isn't that old. This is weeks ago. And they said they love this position, this sort of this iconic position of prayer. And they said, you know what, we're going to create this little website and we're going to put these pictures up. And, you know, in our day of going viral, this is no kidding, four days later, those guys were on national talk shows because of the millions of hits this website had. And people from all over the country and all over the world are having their picture taken, Tebowing, down on one knee, send it into the website, and they post these pictures. And Tim Tebow's silent witness now is going on all over the world. Now, some of this, no doubt, is mocking. He was sacked, I think it was by one of the Detroit Lions, 
and really taken down. I think he was sacked seven times in this game or something. And on one of them, the guy who sacked him Tebowed him right next to him down on the field. You know, everyone assumed he was mocking him. Tim, Tim Tebow says, hey, good for him. It was a great sack. And I don't think he meant any ill will towards me. But which do you think will last longer? His verbal witness or his silent witness? the words he said, or the image in our minds of him kneeling. I'm not predicting here, and I don't know. But, you know, we say a picture is worth a thousand words. And for the guy who's already made the claim verbally, it's displayed graphically or visually for people. And whether the specifics of anything he says are remembered there's a good chance that the silent witness will live on. God bless and God keep Tim Tebow. And you know guys like this, by the way, not because he's a celebrity, but because he's a Christian who's out there. People are looking for ways to take people like this down. They're looking for ways to find out he's not really a Joseph. He's not the same thing through and through. He says one thing, but he lives another. Uh, God bless and God keep. And we can sure stand to pray for Tim Tebow. And God help all of us to honor Jesus Christ in this, his season, at least, at the very least, by having a silent witness like Joseph's, that God, we hear and we obey. Father, we do pray that you'd keep and protect your son, Tim Tebow. I ask that his actions always match his words that you'd uphold him, Lord, in a land and a culture that hopes he fails so that everyone else can feel better. Lord, thanks for a testimony like Joseph's in the Gospels. Lord, this silent witness that is so convicting, that challenges us all to live what we say we believe. God, none of us do this perfectly. Certainly you know. But help us come closer to the model Joseph exhibits here Lord, ultimately, Joseph points us to you. Lord, ultimately, to your son, the Lord Jesus, who took our sins on himself so that in all the ways we fail, Lord, those sins are covered by his blood. We receive your grace. Lord, for any of us here who have not yet received the the greatest gift of all, the Christmas gift, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and by faith in Christ have received new life, Lord, help them to accept your great gift this morning. Jesus and eternal life. Lord, and help us all to live this life well as Joseph did. Help us to have both, Lord, a consistent verbal witness and, Lord, a silent witness as well. In Jesus' name, amen.